Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, Clinical Trials Ensuring Inclusivity. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Astellas, Merkin Company, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech. In this final episode in our series, Dr. Otis Brawley and Dr. Christopher Flowers discuss clinical trials in oncology. Are they reflective of the general population of patients who will ultimately be affected by the trial outcomes? Doctors Brawley and Flowers take a deeper look at factors that impact clinical trial demographics. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash disparities five. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Brawley is a professor in the Department of Oncology at Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Flowers is division head ad interim of the Division of Cancer Medicine and is professor and chair of lymphoma and myeloma at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Brawley will begin our discussion. Hi, this is Dr. Otis Brawley talking to Dr. Chris Flowers. And in this edition of the podcast, we're going to talk about clinical trials and the need for inclusivity and how you ensure inclusivity. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Great. Thanks, Otis. Yeah, Chris, the NIH Revitalization Act of 1993 put a broad light on the issue of inclusion by race and gender in clinical trials. Uh, what has uh, what do you think about that? And do you think we overemphasize it, underemphasize it, or is it just right, or is it not important at all? Uh, in my view, this is uh, just right. I, I think that it, you know it is really important that our clinical trials, particularly our clinical trials that are designed to change the practice of clinical care, reflect the population of patients uh, for whom uh, those decisions are ultimately going to be applied. And so we really need to have inclusion of the appropriate patient populations by race, by gender, and ideally by uh, some other factors like socioeconomic status, rural status, some of the other factors that we talked about in the other podcasts that influence uh, social the social determinants of health that can influence outcomes. If we really want to see uh, interventions change practice and change practice in ways that impacts all patients, we need to enroll the kinds of patients uh, that it will ultimately be applied to on clinical trials. Yeah, you bring up a good point. You know, race is not a biological categorization. It's a sociopolitical categorization. And many of the clinical trials that uh, are out there, though, especially the large ones, we have what's called the healthy volunteer effect where when we look at the outcome of a drug treatment or a surgery or what have you, it's much better in the clinical trial than when we go do it in the real world because the people who were attracted to the clinical trial because they had transportation, they had insurance, they actually fulfilled the inclusion criteria for the clinical trial, they tend to be healthier as a group than folks in the real world. 
And so inclusion is important if you want to get a real answer for how the treatment or how the preventative is going to work in the entire population. Now, it's interesting. We were reviewing some data before the podcast. NCI-sponsored clinical trials through the National Cancer Institute-sponsored clinical trials through the cooperative groups tend to be representative of the populations of the United States by race. I'm using race as a socio-political categorization. Company-sponsored trials tend to have lower numbers of Blacks and lower numbers of Hispanics. You want to speculate on why that might be? Uh, It's hard to know exactly what the the reasons for those differences are, but I suspect that relates to the types of sites uh, where those clinical trials are open. Those uh, tend not to be sites uh, in uh, less urban populations. Um, you know, the NCI groups uh, have a little bit of a broader reach uh, in that that there are uh, components of the NCI uh, compendium of sites uh, that include uh, less urban uh, centers and also include cooperation with community-based uh, practices. And so that may be more reflective of the U.S. populations. I think that uh, companies, particularly companies that are moving towards uh, new, uh, attempts at new drug approvals are aware uh, of these distinctions in terms of the lack of representation that they might have for certain groups and are now uh, actively trying to make uh, changes to be able to improve that. But that's something that we need to see with additional interventions in the future, uh, like some of the ones that we'll talk about uh, to improve uh, inclusivity uh, and enrollment on clinical trials. Are Blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans unwilling to go on to clinical trials? So I think one of the things that uh, has been raised uh, that uh, can be addressed with data is that when clinical trial participation is offered to patients, uh, and this gets back uh, to some of the points we talked about in the earlier podcast about equal access leads to equal outcomes. Uh, When Blacks and Whites and Hispanics are asked uh, to enroll in clinical trials, uh, they uh, commonly participate at the same kinds of rates uh, that white patients do. You know, the National Cancer Institute, the NCI, uh, was a leader in this. They started doing these studies back in the mid-1990s, and it's been done several times now. And when you talk to people who qualify for a treatment study in cancer, 70 to 75%, 70 to 77% really, say yes, be they black, white, Hispanic, or other races and ethnicities, it's amazing. Now that's trials for people who have cancer. Uh, There were some disparities in some of the trials where you're trying to prevent disease. And there, when you start thinking about it, And then when you talk about breast cancer prevention trial or prostate cancer prevention trial, you're asking someone to enter a trial for five to 10 years and take a pill every day to try to prevent a problem that they're not likely to have. You have to be educated and upper middle class to be able to afford to worry about a problem that you're not likely to have. It's interesting. It is interesting. I mean, I think there are a number of barriers to clinical trial participation. As you as you mentioned, you know, when uh, individuals are asked to participate, 
the, the rates don't appear to differ uh, quite dramatically, at least using race as uh, one factor and a social construct that we can use to, to look at that. I, I think, uh, but there are, there are clearly barriers. Travel uh, is one of them that can influence that. Health literacy and health education are other ones. Those are barriers that can be addressed uh, by some of the factors that we described uh, in our previous podcast, like uh, patient navigators, support uh, from uh, other components of the healthcare system, like advanced practice providers and uh, specific uh, clinical trial coordinators that help to promote enrollment on clinical trials. Now, we of course want clinical trials to be safe, and that's why we have eligibility criteria. But uh, some of those eligibility criteria keep minorities off of trials because the minority community, the racial minority community does have for socioeconomic and social determinants of health reasons, higher rates of comorbidity, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Are, are you aware of efforts to try to decrease the eligibility criteria, but keep these trials safe? So this has been an area that's uh, been a personal interest and something that I've been focused on in, in recent years around clinical trials in general. I think you know, many of our eligibility criteria are legacy or historical eligibility criteria. Some of those um, come about uh, because clinical trials go through phases and in uh, phase one and phase two, when we're first testing the safety of the new drug, we oftentimes restrict uh, the drug to uh, more select patient populations to be able uh, to test its safety. Once that safety is proven, though, it's possible to remove uh, potentially some of those eligibility criteria. Uh, in uh, situations when those eligibility criteria are needed and absolutely necessary uh, for the safety of a drug where we know that a drug might affect uh, blood pressure, uh, hypertension is uh, one example that might be relevant. But in others where hypertension or diabetes or obesity are not really strictly relevant to the mechanism of the action of the drug uh, or the potential safety of the drug, those kinds of criteria really need to be removed to expand the opportunities for eligibility for broader patient populations and to ease the process of getting patients on clinical trials. In some cases, you know, the pages and pages or reams of eligibility criteria that you need to go through to determine whether somebody's eligible or not by themselves are a barrier to participation in the clinical trial. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I've always encouraged people to participate in clinical trials or at least go to doctors who participate in clinical trials is going way, way back into the early 1990s. There's a couple guys named Arnie Kaluzny and Dick Wernicke from the University of North Carolina and University of Illinois. And they did a series of studies to show that doctors who participate in clinical trials, be they in the community or at universities, doctors who participate in clinical trials take better care of all of their patients. If they put 3% of their patients on clinical trials, they took better care of the other 97%. The treatment was more likely to be up to date. Something about the discipline and the learning of participating in clinical trials affects how they take care of all their patients. I think that's underrated in our literature. People don't understand that is a legitimate reason to support clinical trials. It improves quality of care. 
I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, that is really a very important point. I mean, the kind of uh, scrutiny that it takes to be able to put a patient on a clinical trial in terms of going through each of those kinds of eligibility criteria that I described, collecting labs in a timely fashion to determine eligibility and to be able to follow the patient on the trial, giving medications and treatments at a prescribed uh, timeline uh, and documenting that very carefully. Uh, all of those skills that the physicians develop in the process of caring for patients on clinical trial naturally translate into their care of other patients. And so for those reasons, uh, going to see a doctor who participates in clinical trials uh, can provide a higher quality cancer care uh, than other settings. Last question. Going into the future, we're going to see a lot more 30 and 50 person trials that are looking at a drug and a target or a drug that's metabolized to something that hits a target. Uh, we're going to have to look more at pharmacokinetics and the pharmacology of drugs and the distribution of these targets and these uh, metabolic enzymes in various populations by populations defined by area of geographic origin versus race. Am I right? I think that's exactly uh, right. Uh, you know, we've uh, started uh, in my research group to uh, look uh, at ethnic origin and to see how ethnic origin infuse, uh, influences variability uh, in things uh, like uh, the tumor, but likewise, it influences the metabolism of the drug, drug pharmacokinetics, uh, and uh, potentially responses to the drug therapy in terms of the outcomes uh, with the tumor, uh, but also the toxicity of the drugs. And so we'll need to look at that uh, much more closely. This has been Otis Brawley uh, talking to Dr. Chris Flowers, discussing clinical trials and ensuring inclusivity. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash disparities five. For all the episodes in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash disparities.